Good morning. To all the youngsters out there, those of you in your 20s and 30s and 40s, I'd like to tell you a story of how life was long, long ago. When I was a boy, people would gather in large crowds. They really did. We would gather in these things called stadiums, sometimes 100,000 of us at a time. And together we would shout, usually for something like the team that we all came to cheer on. People would actually touch each other's hands. It was called a high five back in the day. I have actually witnessed people Total strangers embrace each other, like, like literally hug each other over the joy that, that they would be experiencing in that, that sporting event or whatever it was. That's how it was a long, long time ago. And I'm wondering, what's, what's it going to be like when we move forward? Remember when you could go to things like the circus? Anybody like the circus, right? I, I want you to draw off of one of those crowd moments in the circus, but today, not, not the lions or the tigers or the bears, oh my. Today, the elephants. Anybody like the elephants? I mean, the elephants were kind of always a, just literally a big deal at the circus because you got these massive animals who, who come out there and they're suddenly doing tricks like your little dog at home. But with the elephants, there's always this guy. Can you see him? Can you see him? Do you remember the first time that you ever went to the circus and you realized what that guy was doing when the elephants came out? Right? Usually, not only is there a big scoop involved, usually they had a trash can. But that's the reality. There are no elephants in the circus without a big scoop. Okay, where are we going with this? We're going straight to Proverbs chapter 14. Because Proverbs chapter 14 verse 4 reads like this. Where there are no oxen, the manger is empty. But from the strength of an ox come abundant harvest. Now, a manger is like a feeding trough for livestock. And so the point of this little proverb is if you want to avoid having to do chores like, like you know, mucking stalls, if you want to avoid having to keep the barn clean, then don't get an oxen. Don't get oxen. That, because oxen are messy. They require a big scoop. But if you choose not to have an ox, what's the cost? And if we can go back to the verse again, it, the cost is in the last part, right? From the strength of an ox comes abundant harvest. Without an ox, there is no abundant harvest. Okay, the ox is messy, 
but the ox is strong. So if you want to live and if you want to eat, you need an ox in the barn. Because if there's no ox, then there's no plow. And if there's no plow, then there's no planting. And if there's no planting, then there's no crop. And if there's no crop, then there's no harvest. And if there's no harvest, there's no life. And so the big idea of this little proverb, the, the, the moral, if you will, is embrace the mess. Embrace the mess. Now, just a quick note, because sometimes I think we misunderstand when we read the Proverbs. The Proverbs are not promises. The Proverbs are not guarantees. The Proverbs are Proverbs, which means they are probabilities. Proverbs are how things generally work. Now, come on, there are plenty of promises in the Bible where God states something, and when God states something, it is true. But when it comes to Proverbs, there's another Proverbs, the proverb that says, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. That's not a guarantee, because a proverb is not a promise. But it is the statement of generally this is the way it works when you are a parent. If you will parent well, training your child to do well, think well, love well, then as they grow up, they are more than likely going to continue to do those things. But come on, we all know some exceptions to that. It's because Proverbs are probabilities. They're not promises. So the idea of this proverb is, if you're going to enjoy the harvest, generally, you got to be willing to embrace the mess. Rarely is there a harvest in anything in your life without a big scoop. We could apply this to, obviously, just about every area of our life I mean, how about something like physical fitness? I mean, if, if COVID has made us think about anything, it ought to make us think a little bit about how healthy we are. Um, if you quarantine too long and don't think about it, you'll think about how many more pounds you're adding on, right? And so I, I, during this whole thing, I, I have sort of jokingly said, but it's, it is the truth, I walked through the month of April so that I could rock through the month of May. If you don't know what rulking is, rulking is in your heart you want to run, but you actually end up walking most of the time. That's rulking, all right? So in May, I rulked so that by June, I could actually run. And that's exactly what I'm doing now. But here's what I want you to know. It's an ugly process. It's ugly. It is. It is so much more difficult now than it used to be. Now, I'm doing it. I'm down 20 pounds, but if you think it's ugly now, you got to think about last month, my beard was down to here, mostly white in the front, 20 more pounds of a belly that shook like jelly. There were children shouting out the car windows, mom, Santa is jogging, because it's ugly, it's messy. But you know what the harvest is? Every 20 pounds less, you feel a little better. 
And even more importantly, I feel like I'm lining up with what God tells me to do in terms of to honor him with these bodies that we give him. Not only self-control, but to actually get to do the mission that he's called me to as long as possible. But, but my point is, in just about everything we do in life, there is a big scoop. And you got to learn to embrace the mess. How about parenting? <laughs> There's a quote that I read this week from an astrophysicist, which is what you feel like you need to be, to be a, a parent sometimes, right? The astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, this is what he said, kids are born scientists. They're always turning over rocks or picking petals off of flowers. They're always doing things that by and large are destructive. That's what exploration kind of is. You take stuff apart, whether you know how to put it back together or not. This is what kids do. And he goes on to make the statement that an adult scientist is kind of like a kid who never grew up. Now, I like that, but it's also convicting. Because as parents, it's the moment when your kid decides to drag all the pots and pans out from under the cabinet because they want to make some noise. It's the moment when suddenly there's a few eggs missing from the carton because they want to see if they really can juggle. It's the moment that they spot that perfectly shaped puddle of water. What are perfectly shaped puddles of water for? But what's our instinct? Don't do that. It'll break. It's noisy. You'll make a mess. Tyson continues, we don't have enough parents who understand or know how to value the inquisitive nature of their own kids because they want to keep order in their own household. Now, he's not saying let kids run the world. That's not biblical. He's not saying let your kids destroy your house. That's not love. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying sometimes, though, we got to realize, sure, a prevented mess is a pre-cleaned up mess, but at what cost? The cost of discovery, the cost of learning, the cost of growth, the cost, the cost of development. As parents, we got to hear this proverb, where there are no kids, the house may be clean, but the harvest comes by the presence of our kids being kids. The harvest almost always requires a big scoop. You got to learn to embrace the mess. I think that's true in all relationships. It's why some people are so hesitant to build friendships because they're well aware that people are messy. It's why some people don't ever get to know their neighbors because they know that people are messy. It's why some folks, even in our church, will never become a part of a life team because they fear getting connected to people that are messy. It's why some life teams never grow bigger than they do 
because they like their manger clean. It's why sometimes people never do ministry outside the walls of the church. It's messy. And I get it. There are some people who would look at that and go, well, there's a part of that that's just wise, right? You learn how to, how to navigate people. And, and, but I'm saying when you become a Jesus follower, the mission changes all of that. Because we are now given this mission to live and to share the good news of Jesus with with everyone that we can possibly share it with. In other words, the harvest outweighs the mess for us. The harvest is bigger than whatever the messiness is. And so I think sometimes we got to ask the hard questions. What does it mean if you're willing to deal with people's messiness in order to make money, but you won't do so in order to strengthen those who already belong to the family of God, nor to share the gospel with those who don't yet know him? The harvest outweighs the mess, but it almost always involves a big scoop. In the time we got left, I want to apply this proverb in an area where, as you might imagine, this week I am getting lots and lots and lots of questions. Jeff, what about this racial reconciliation thing. Jeff, I don't even, I don't know what to do because I don't know what to believe. I, I don't know who to really listen to. I don't know what's manipulation. I don't know what's political. It's like, how, how can I help? And it's genuine questions of how am I supposed to do something and what is it that I can actually do that would help? Is there something I can do to help that doesn't end up getting twisted into something that I never intended for it to be? I want you to hear me. There are supernatural forces at work to wreck efforts of racial reconciliation. So one of the things that I have found is that one of the reasons church people sometimes don't give much of themselves to this effort is that eventually you get hurt because it's messy. It's messy. But I believe that whatever God says is what matters here. And so in all the confusion and in all the the question, right, we need to start and we need to finish with what God says on this matter. And we need to filter everything else through what God says on this matter. And today I want to show you something I think is absolutely remarkable that God says on this matter. I'm going to read to you some some scripture here in a minute from Ephesians chapter 2. Now, when I say Ephesians chapter 2, God's people tend to just start spouting. I mean, it's like, right, it is by grace that you are saved, right, through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. People, God's people just start spouting Ephesians chapter 2, usually about all the way to verse 10. And then you get to verse 10, and they stop, and you go, what's next? And they go, there's more? There's more. And that's actually what I want to show you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 This is what he says, the Apostle Paul, therefore remember that formerly 
you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, which is done in the body by human hands. Hang on, we'll talk about it. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. The Apostle Paul is referring to a centuries-long divide between the ethnic Jews and all the other ethnic groups in the Near East called the Gentiles. Now, this divide was religious. It was. You had the the Jews who believe in the one true living God. You have the Gentiles who worship many false gods. You've got a divide that is cultural and social. There are these ceremonies and practices like circumcision and dietary regulations and rules of cleanliness. And all of that was designed to set the Jews apart from all the nations to make clear the radical holiness of God. The divide was racial. This is, this is about a bloodline going back to Jacob, not Esau, to Isaac, not Ishmael. It's a racial. But this divide, I'm telling you, is bigger than any divide that we find ourselves in. Any divide of racial struggle. Now, having said that, I want to make sure you hear me today that I am not belittling the existing pain that is at play in our culture right now. I'm going to remind you that our country historically has not done this well. We have not. A civil war from 1861 to 1865. But you probably remember, you had to to study it in school. 1863 was actually when Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But after? Segregation. Segregation is the word from schools to pools to to phone booths. Y'all, Rosa Parks is arrested in 1955. That's 92 years later. Martin Luther King Jr. and the the Civil Rights Act that signed in 1964, that's 101 years after Lincoln signs the proclamation. My point is, if you study the history as a country, we have not done this well. And I'm telling you that as the church, historically, we have not done this well. We have not. Uh, We as a church are a part of a denomination called the Southern Baptist Convention. The reason that we are a part of this particular denomination is because of the strong belief in the authority of Scripture and the strong push for mission to take this good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. But do you actually know how the Southern Baptist Convention got its name? 1845 when Baptists in southern states opposed abolition and black civil rights. That's how the name formed. And we go, well, that's not what we're about anymore, but I'm just saying that's the history. And the history is too many times in all these years, the church 
has relinquished this particular fight to other forces. And when other forces are involved, look, it gives us no right then as the church to sit back and like snipers shoot at everything we think doesn't line up with how it should be. I'm saying this pain is not small. It is real. It is big. But we got to realize that when we talk about racial reconciliation, the Bible tells us, you understand, there is one race. <laughs> we're, 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 if we weren't the same race, we wouldn't be able to reproduce with each other. We come from the same original set of parents. Multiple ethnicities, but one race. And those distinctions are arbitrary based on certain features that, that, that we have. You, you didn't choose those. But I'm saying the difference that we read in Ephesians chapter 2 is a difference between Jews and Gentiles. These Gentiles are not just outsiders of another ethnic group. They are not just a, a part of experiencing systems that are oppressing them. It is clear they are outsiders to God. They, they have no hope, no God. There is nothing that compares to this. Here's where I'm going. If God can reconcile those who have real distinctions, then you know what? He certainly can reconcile those who have arbitrary differences between them. Let's keep reading verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's temple language. It means there was a holy of holies in the temple where the presence of God was recognized. High priest, once a year, only one that goes in and does the work. A little further out was the court of the Jewish men. A little further away was the court of the Jewish women. And even further away was the court of those Gentile proselytes, those who had, who had turned to God. They couldn't get any closer. But now, he says, through the blood of Jesus, those of you who were way back there in the back, you know what? You have been brought near. Talk about a seat upgrade. He says, you are now reconciled. And how were you reconciled? N not by simply reading a bunch of books about their differences. How were you reconciled? Uh, it was by the blood of Jesus who reconciled us to himself and to one another. It is the blood of Jesus that brings racial reconciliation to the family of God. You and I don't achieve it. He achieved it, and it's real. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Everybody say peace. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose to, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Here, here's the word. 
Jesus doesn't just give you peace. He is our peace. And what he describes here is not just two sides who decide to put down their arms and no longer fight. No, you know what he says? You're not two anymore. You're one. These who were divided, you're not two anymore. You you are one. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you know what it's like to have people in the church who are closer to you than your blood family. That's because blood may be thicker than water, but it is not stronger than the church. It's not stronger than the cross. That's why some of you can travel to other lands and be a part of churches that you don't even speak their language, but you feel home. It's because unity is achieved by the blood of Jesus, the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, giving us what we need to know him and each other. And once we know that truth, then we realize now we begin to grow and and to walk in a greater understanding. So when we eat together, we grow in that unity. When, When we play together, we grow in that unity. But the unity is only bought by one thing, the blood of Jesus. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. In other words, we think the Jews had the history, they had the scripture, and so the point is everybody needed to become like the Jews. No, the message is, hey, you Gentiles, you are brought near by the blood of Jesus. And you Jews, you are brought near by the blood of Jesus. In other words, our mission is to go to all people with this message. And just like Jesus, as we go to all people, we make sure we don't miss anyone. Just because other people are stepping over the top of them, just because other people are acting as though they are not valuable. No, when you follow Jesus, you on this mission, you miss no one. So in that sense, you realize black lives do matter. Black lives matter. Now, here's what's so crazy in this. The tension that is felt when that phrase in our culture, and I get it in the sense of, if you actually search the Black Lives Matter organization, you will find values there that I don't believe line up with the values of God. You will find it. But when most people say Black Lives Matter, they are not referring to some values on a website. All they are trying to figure out is, is there value? Is there value here? I'm saying the average person is going, is there value? And so come on, here's what I want us to understand today. It is true that our God so loves what? The world. But sometimes, Jesus said, Samaritan lives matter. Sometimes he said it. 
Sometimes Jesus said children's lives matter. Sometimes he said Gentile lives matter. Sometimes Jewish lives matter. Sometimes he said women's lives matter. Sometimes he said lepers' lives, they matter. He wasn't saying they're the only ones that matter. He was just simply highlighting a moment when everybody else was stepping over the top of somebody, acting as though they were not valuable. And Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh, you need to know they are valuable to me. We need to be careful as the church that we take every opportunity that we have to verify the truth of how our God loves. How he loves. I gotta finish, so I'm just telling you that the rest of Ephesians chapter two is about a racial reconciliation that he's quite clear, we don't achieve it. It's something that Jesus achieves, but it's something that we believe and begin to walk in. We are one in Christ, and so the rest of our life is learning to walk in that reality. It's kind of like a a married couple who is learning to deal with, with each other's oxness. You like that word? If you've ever been married, you know that oxness exists, doesn't it? Well, when you're dealing with that, you you don't need to get remarried. You just need to, you're already married, you just need to strengthen what already exists. So if I'm struggling in my relationship with my wife, I need to hear from her. I I don't need to just sit down and read books about what the book says she is. In James, he says it this way, my dear brothers, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. In other words, you gotta listen if you wanna grow in this. Because come on, all white people aren't the same, all black people aren't the same, all brown people aren't the same, they're unique. It means, it means you got to listen to one another. And all responses are not okay. Our anger apart from God is not the answer. We don't fight injustice with injustice. Here are the two things that the Scripture teaches us. Racial reconciliation has been achieved through the blood of Jesus. We get to celebrate that as the church. As the church, this is true for us. Racial reconciliation has been achieved through the blood of Jesus. Now we grow in that understanding. But it also tells us that racial reconciliation will one day be fully, permanently realized. To all you youngsters out there, I'd like to tell you a story about how life was a long, long time ago. When I was a boy, we would gather in crowds. Like one year when the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Anybody remember that? Remember that year? And Chiefs kingdom gathered, and it looked a little bit like that. I'm like right there. I was there. And I'm telling you that there were more people than you could count there. People of different 
ethnicity. I mean, it was amazing from, from Irish to Italian to Puerto Rican to Nigerian to Colombian, you name it, people were there. But it's funny, so many differences, but everybody was focused on a victory that somebody else had won for them. Very different, but all wearing one color, red. Waving banners, waving flags, and shouting together in one voice, right? Oh, 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 right? It's amazing how different people can gather under one name. You think that's good? Listen to this. The scripture says, after this I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were all wearing the same color and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You understand our God wants everybody at that party. And our mission is to take that message to everybody. We take the gospel, but I want you to understand when we take the gospel, it does not mean that we just say it. Now, if you're going to take the gospel, you got to speak it. You got to speak the good news of Jesus, but we don't just speak it. We also say, how can we help? Don't we get that? I mean, come on. When we take the gospel to the issue of sex trafficking, we don't just speak the gospel. We go, how can we help? When we take the gospel, right, to, to the homeless, we don't, we don't just speak it. We go, how can we also help? When, when we take the gospel to, to something like the fight against abortion, we don't just speak the gospel. We say, how can we help? And when we take the gospel to racial tension, we don't just speak the gospel. We say, how can we help? There are supernatural forces at work trying to wreck whatever you do to help. But that is a storm that you as a child of God were built to run into because you know the truth. God, I thank you for truth. In a moment where so much confusion, God, so much information, misinformation, God, I thank you that we can turn to a place and know through the blood of Jesus, God, you have made reconciliation real for your kingdom. And for we, the church, that's not something we have to achieve. You achieved it. And now, 
you call us to walk in it. So God, today, today is about this willingness to realize that with every harvest, there's a big scoop. And we're asking you to help us, God, to know how to, how to walk in this. I thank you for a glimpse of a day, a day when we will fully, permanently realize the reconciliation of all nations, tribes, peoples, languages, God, a kingdom that you build where we will know it forever and ever. So in between those two realities of what you have achieved and what we will one day receive, God, will you give your church courage to not relinquish this fight to any other forces just because it's messy? May you teach us to listen and learn and love. In the name of Jesus, I pray it. Amen.